by God himself. Genesis chapter 1, verses 27 through 28. You guys may just have to deal with glitches in the HDMI cable this morning, and so it will not diminish our Father's ability to commune with your soul, I promise. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. And now to the book of Colossians. In the words of the great church planter, Paul. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. This is the word of the Lord. That was pretty weak, but go ahead and have a seat. And one final prayer. Would you join me in one final prayer this morning as we get into our teaching? Father, these are strange days to be followers of a crucified carpenter. These are days of great tumult, great trouble, schisming, shaking. These are the greatest days to be followers of Jesus. For such a time as this, you've appointed us, your people, not to be finger-pointing and judgmental, but to truly see our perceived enemy as our wounded family, to love for and care for the least of these. The church, Lord, has been war-torn, ragged, and become weary. May rest be our state of existence, but may we also be known as a people who work hard, tilling the ground, cultivating the land, caring for the souls, multiplying, bearing fruit, bringing heaven on earth as it is in your kingdom. And so fill us now with your spirit. Each of us has an appointment, a commission from the king on high to fulfill our role, investment bankers to baristas, blue-collar workers, to the CEO suites. We each have a respective role, a purpose, a part to play in our vocation, our calling. And may these practices unite us with the church at large. May this renewal work that we are part of spread here from the West Coast across the nation and all around the globe. May we get to be part of a global renewal of your church. And I do selfishly and even publicly pray May neighbors be ascending church of church planters and missionaries, a global discipleship movement alongside our sister churches as your spirit blows upon us with great wind of new fire, freshness and hope and joy. In Jesus' name, all of God's people said, amen. So this last week, we launched our brand new sermon series entitled Future Church. What we're doing is each week over these eight weeks is we are exploring eight unique challenges that we as 21st followers, 21st century followers of Jesus experience. Sociologists say that we now live as 
late modern Western people in our current society. There's been a lot of worldview transformation that has occurred. And so these challenges that are raised are unique to the people of God in the way that we view the world. With each successive challenge, which by the way, eight is nowhere near exhaustive in its listing. There are many challenges more than just eight. But with these eight highlighted challenges, we are also rolling out particular practices. That is practices rooted in the Bible, rooted in the way of Jesus, based on his life and his practices, the way he behaved in his world, in his time. And these practices are specifically designed to counterform our souls according to the contours of God's kingdom. Never forget, we are all malleable. It's just a big word that means we are shapeable. We are like clay in the hands of potters. And some potter is shaping you today. Be that Instagram, be that professors, be that your parents or your pastors, or the practices and the ways of Jesus. We are all being formed. And so in the midst of this cultural upheaval, we are seeking to lay out a series of practices that address the specific challenges that we're being faced with that counterform us, that shape our souls according to the contours of God's kingdom rather than by the contours of a culture that's really tearing itself apart at the seams. I want to remind you guys, one of the most exciting things about this series for me personally as a leader in the church, my wife and I have been in the church planning world for about 20 years now, never experienced anything like this. We are doing this exact same series, virtually the exact same notes, alongside our sister churches, our dear friends at Park Hill, Evan and Sandy, and that crew over there up in Encinitas, Light Church, Benji, and, and that whole crew up there. We are literally teaching this series together as an act of solidarity, as an act of unity. We're just swapping notes alongside them. Bridgetown up in Portland, Reality San Francisco has already done these series, Dave Lomas and uh, John Mark Comer. And we literally are just taking some of their material and cutting and pasting it and then putting in some of our own ideas so that we present this solidarity in behavior and in practice together as churches in this cultural moment. It is really, really beautiful what we get to be part of together with the rest of the church. So last week we started our series with the challenge of cultural exhaustion. That low-grade fatigue that most of us came in here with this morning, if not full-on exhaustion. And we rolled out the practice of Sabbath. I highly encourage you to listen to the podcast from this last week if you are not familiar with the Protestant practice, the Christian practice of Sabbath. Everybody needs to understand as we get into our session this morning that Sabbath is not Sabbath without six days of work. I think that Sabbath is in the air in the Christian community right now, and we like to think of it as, well, if one day off is good, maybe seven days off is good. At least I do. <laughs> maybe I could figure out how to Sabbath every other day. This is not the constitution that God gave us in the creation narrative. He said six days of work leads to Sabbath. So without six days of work, there is no Sabbath, and that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We want to be exploring what a community of contribution in the midst of a culture that's given over to what we call careerism. How do we think about our work as Christians? How are we as Jesus followers to practice our job in a culture that is either trying to escape work endlessly or making work our entire world, our identity? That's the question we're going to explore today. Let's jump right in. 
The ancient Greeks, upon whom much of Western society and its way of thinking is built today, they thought that gods had made human beings only for work. And so the ancient Greeks actually viewed work as a curse, not as a blessing. Does that sound familiar to any of us? (laughs) Work was demeaning for the ancient Greeks, so much so that the great Aristotle said that unemployment, and by unemployment, Aristotle meant the ability to live without having to work. Aristotle said that that unemployment, that place of living without having to work, was a primary qualification for a genuinely worthwhile life. So if you're like that 42-year-old guy living in your mom's basement in your pajamas playing Xbox, Aristotle says, well done. <laughs> in my family, in my family, we play this game all the time. It's a blast. We do this, I don't know, once a month. We, we'll sit around the table at dinner at night and we'll ask this question. If you could live in any time in history, at any place, and be anybody, who and what would you be? And I, without fail, every time my kids always laugh at me, I always say, I would want to be a Native American before Europeans came to North America. Why? Because in my mind, I envision, you know, I'm running around out there, I'm hunting, I'm fishing, I'm exploring the mountains, I'm going on my spirit quest, whatever it is that I'm doing. But it, to me, it's a, it's a life of leisure. It's a life without pressure. It's a life without all the modern constraints and pressures of the world that I currently live in. Now, my wife, my wife, oh, <laughs> my wife, she always, she always without fail says, I'd like to live during the time of Downton Abbey. But then, but then she always qualifies it with, but I would want to be one of the rich aristocrats. You know, sipping tea all day long and trying on my dresses. I wouldn't want to be down there serving. <laughs> Why is that? Why is that that we so long for a life of leisure? Why is it that Monday is such a curse word in so many of our vocabularies? Why are we trying constantly to escape the inescapable. That is, we must have work to accomplish. And the reason that the biblical sages tell us is that work has been made hard, difficult. Work is now full of struggle and travail and problems and pain because of sin and the twisting of our souls and the breaking of this world. Here's Genesis chapter 3. To Adam, that's just human, to Adam. He said, because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat food from it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return And so Monday after Monday, until we become dirt again, we will struggle with this idea of needing to work. Our daydreams of a life of leisure, they are actually echoes of our most primal memories of what it is to be human. We are aching on Monday morning as we make our commute, groaning under the weight of the work we must accomplish for the week. We are groaning and aching for a world where the ground is no longer cursed and where our toil is without pain, and thorns and thistles and death can no longer deny us of the fruit of a life in intimate relationship with our Creator. But I want you guys to remember something, and this is so key as we turn a corner in our teaching this morning. The garden was not paradise because there was no work in the garden. (laughs) The garden was not devoid of work. 
Heaven won't be heaven because there won't be work there. More on that in just a moment. The Genesis account actually dignifies humans and work. Work is ingrained into the very contours of creation before the fall in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Work is actually a God-ordained activity. Therefore, because work is part of the contours of creation, we human beings try as we may to escape the thorns and the thistles and the death that we live in the midst of. We cannot not work. Forgive me, English professors. I didn't know how else to say that. As humans, we cannot not work. Therefore, the pendulum swings. If we're not trying to escape work because of the wounding of our hearts and our separation from God, we now are tempted to, and more often is the case, actually make work our everything. We make work our identity. We make work our community. We make work our family. We make work our salvation. Derek Thompson, he's a staff writer for The Atlantic, has this great little article, I highly recommend it. Workism is making Americans miserable, and he writes this. Workism is among the most potent of the new religions competing for congregants. What is workism? It is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centerpiece of one's identity and life's purpose. The best educated and highest American, earning Americans, who can have whatever they want, have chosen the office for the same reason that devout Christians attend church on Sundays. It's where they feel most themselves. Our desks were never meant to be our altars, and he goes on to write extensively about the burdens of making work an ism for your soul. So what's the most common question that we ask each other after meeting one another? What do you do, right? What do you do? What do you do? For all the kids in here, what are you studying right now? Who, what are you going to be doing, right? Now, that question on the surface, is, it's not necessarily a bad question. I think, it's a, I think it's a genuine question. But in the American psyche, our identities are so wrapped up in what we do that there's some subtly hidden things in that question. I'm going to ask us to be brutally honest with the deformities of our own souls. Because in American culture, when we ask, what do you do, we're also sizing one another up. Who are you? Where do you fit in on the social hierarchy? Are you ahead of me? Are you behind me? Are you above me or are you below me in the way that I understand identity in the workplace? We have made work our identity. And we live in what philosophers and sociologists call a meritocracy. Meritocracy. I want you to learn a big word here. Meritocracy is essentially a culture that gives rewards to those that merit it based on their abilities, based on their giftings, based on their personalities, based on their successes. And so we live in a meritocracy that values money and material gain and social wealth above all else. And in this meritocracy, as we look at who gets the money and who has the social hierarchy, we have actually stratified, that's layered, the workplace into better and higher people and less than and lower people according to their job profiles. Culturally, we tend to elevate the intellectual and the political and the financial classes the people that write the books, the people that teach in the universities, the people that politically rule the polos, the city, the politicians, the people that have the money. We call them literally the elites, without even wincing. The elites. It's subtle, but the elites, these classes that seem to have stratified in a place above, they're the unconscious and maybe even conscious gold standard of success, of a life well lived. Now, Track with me here for a moment. This proclivity to attribute value and dignity to our job pro profile, it is toxic and it's deadly for everyone. 
It is deadly for the elites, and it is deadly for those that are considered to be on the lower rungs of the social strata. For example, in the elite world, there's so many articles coming out about how hard it is to be in school at Harvard, and once you've graduated from Yale, to go on and become an entrepreneur and face the struggles that these people are facing, the hyper-competitive, shark-take work environment of our modern moment is one of the reasons that you millennials have been called the burnout generation. It's because you just cannot keep up with the pressures. As Jesus said, the elites are gaining the whole world, but they're losing their souls. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, I was really jarred by this article. I've referenced it a couple times. Princeton economists Angus Deaton and Anne Case, they put out this book in 2018 wherein they detailed what they just titled Deaths of Despair. And they were tracking particularly people groups that don't have four-year college degrees. And so as the pay gap continues to widen and as social esteem for those groups continues to lessen in our socially stratifying meritocracy, many of these in these groups are giving themselves over to addiction and dying by it and even suicide. And so whether rich or poor, high class or low, elite or blue collar, work as our identity is deadly. It's deadly. Now, there's another phenomenon that I wanted to address with you guys this morning because it's something new for me. I'm a Gen Xer. I'm kind of old school. I never experienced this. When I went to work in the early days as a, as a roofer for my uncle and his roofing company, as, as a grocery clerk at Cook's Food Town, the, I was the grocery guy bagging groceries, this was never even on the radar. And it's this. Work is my community. <laughs> work is my family. My Uncle John was my uncle, and he never called me family as I was hauling shingles for him ever. <laughs> in a society of hyper-individualism and radical autonomy, our culture is starved for intimate relationships, so starved that we are looking desperately anywhere for real relationship. And some companies and some CEOs, I think some unconsciously and actually out of almost a pastoral heart for their employees, and I think some who are capitalizing on a very ingenious marketing device, have picked up on this need for relational integrity and authenticity, and they've been trying to meet it. So you can say things like this, here at an insert whatever business. Here at this marketing firm, we're a family. Here at this coffee shop, we are community. We are, we are authentic. We are family. Here at the whatever, whatever, design space. I've noticed too, and I don't have Instagram or TikTok, but I've been kind of... <laughs> I don't know, somewhat like laughed as some Instagram influencer or some super famous TikTok person has got done doing their like their, their description of how they do their home decor, which is really, it's actually very good. Um, or however, however, you know, they've got their brand and they've got their new merch coming out, swipe up, get the merch or whatever it is that they say these days. And then they always cap it off with something like, and you are part of something bigger than yourself. And I love you. You are my family. And I'm like, I don't know who you are. What are you talking about? Your couch looks great, but I'm not your family. The impulse, this impulse towards authenticity, friends, the impulse, the impulse towards community and family, that is beautiful. That is an echo of who we all are as humans. But we have to be honest, in a broken world, it doesn't work that well in marketplaces, in workplaces, especially in capitalist workplace environments. That's not a, I'm not making an economic statement here about capitalism and socialism. I think they both have horrific faults and great benefits. But from a Christian's perspective, to call your fellow employee and your boss, your family, well, it's, it's 
it causes problems. Because at the end of the day, let's just distill this down and be really raw with it. The people that we work with, yeah, we like them, but we are all there for the same reason, and that is to make money, which is actually a necessary and good thing. And we want to make money so we can go and live comfortably with our friends and our family. Our bosses, they are not our closest confidants, and they are not our unconditionally loving parental figures. They're our bosses, who, by the way, are also there to make money so that they can go be with their friends and with their family. This isn't a bad thing. I'm just distilling down the reality of it. When this gets twisted, it leads to workplace disaster in our souls and for the companies. Community language of family in the workplace, in my mind, it creates this kind of weird, like, Michael Scott office environment where everybody's trying to fake like they're best friends because Michael's such a weirdo. <laughs> How many office episodes have you just squirmed your way through? That's our modern moment in the workplace environment. And at worst, when one of the quote-unquote family members doesn't perform and gets themselves fired, well, then all of a sudden the family language bluff is called and chaos ensues within the company. Okay. Identity, community, danger zone for the Christian as they think about their work. How did God design work? Let's move forward now and let's answer the question. How do we think about our work environment? What is Jesus's purpose for you tomorrow, Monday morning, when you go into your job? How should we be thinking about our work and our place in the world? Our work is done. Baseline definition, tomorrow, Monday morning, wherever you're going to do your work, it is to move God's world towards his desired end, which by the way, we don't have a lot of time to talk about this, but God's desired end is a garden city, a renewed garden of Eden, but it's a city, and heaven won't be heaven because there won't be work. Heaven will be heaven because we'll all be working perfectly for the glory of God, okay? So your work tomorrow is moving us towards this garden city end. It's moving all of creation towards this garden city end. And so we approach our work tomorrow morning through the lens of partnership with God, just as Adam and Eve did. Three key ideas from Genesis 1 and 2 to think about your work tomorrow, num tomorrow morning. Number one, we rule. Number two, we cultivate. And number three, we care for. Number one, tomorrow morning, we rule. That sounds nice. We rule. Number two, we cultivate like gardeners. And number three, we care for like shepherds. In Genesis 1, let's talk about ruling and what I mean by that. In Genesis 1, humanity is created to rule. The Hebrew word is literally radah, radah. It means to actively partner with God in taking the world forward. And radah has royalty tones to it. It carries idea of dominion. It carries the idea of subduing. It's the language of, of royalty. And so as image bearers, because we are Adams and Eves going out in partnership with God, tomorrow we go to take the world forward, to bring the, to bring the world forward as rulers, as viceroys, that is, as little kings and queens under king creator God, we go forth to subdue the world and bring it under the reign of God, moving it towards God's ultimate ends. Now, of course, in a broken world, to address this. There is work that is destroying God's world. There is work that is oppressive to humans, uses them, breaks them. There is work that is destroying our planet. There is work that is not moving the world forward. And as image bearers, track with this, as image bearers and Jesus followers, there's a very complicated spectrum of what type of work and work environments Christians can labor in. Most of you as Christians in this next generation are going to face decisions at work where you're going to need to deeply pray, is this something that I can do as a Christian? 
is this something that I feel freedom in my spirit to move the world forward in this way? The spectrum of broken work and world moving forward work that God calls us to, it needs careful prayer, it needs deep scriptural meditation, and honestly, it needs community. You need your community around you to speak into your job environments and the things that you're choosing for your careers so that you can move forward in your life with clarity and conscience. But the broader point this morning being, no matter what type of work, meaning the work that moves God's world forward, from from blue collar to Wall Street, from barista to investment banker, you go to those work environments as an image bearer, as a viceroy, as as a king, as a queen, ruling to bring that place a little bit further forward and bring all that you do in that place a little bit further forward towards this desired end. Work, your work tomorrow, is designed with infinite royal dignity. Let me just say that again, because we have turned this upside down in our brokenness. Your work tomorrow is infused with infinite dignity as a partner with God, moving the world towards his end. In fact, historians actually, actually argue that Christianity was the first worldview to ever dignify manual labor, not as work for slaves beneath the dignity of the oligarchy, but as good and honest work before God and humanity. And so we go forth tomorrow to rule to move the world forward. And in ruling, we begin to cultivate. We are cultivating creation. In Genesis chapter two, we read about these raw materials. If you've ever read Genesis, it's a very strange thing. They talk about gold and trees and water and aromatic resins and all these things, this potential within creation. And humans are put there to rule it, subdue it, but also to cultivate it and to work it like gardeners. The Hebrew word is abad, and it translates cultivate or develop or draw out its potential. The great Tim Keller, Manhattan church planter and pastor, his definition work is this, rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. That's what your work is tomorrow. Tomorrow you are rearranging the raw materials of a particular domain, be that in the bank or as a barista, to draw out its potential for the flourishing of everyone. So this is true of all kinds of work. A couple examples. When a farmer takes soil and seed and rearranges it into a crop of food, that's cultivating. That's bringing enjoyment. That's bringing flourishing. And then when that food goes to the restaurant, from the waiters to the uh, greeters to the cooks to the managers of that restaurant, they are reordering, they are drawing, they are cultivating all, all the potential of that food to bring it to the people to bring flourishing. Or when an entrepreneur takes an idea that comes into their brain, they begin to cultivate all these things. Or a craftsman takes a lump of metal and begins to shape it. Or a parent, mama or a daddy, takes that baby and begins to cultivate and to shape. All of this is the work of cultivation. In fact, our our word culture comes straight from this idea of cultivation. Good culture, which is what we're doing as a church, by the way, we are culture creating here. Counterculture, counterforming. Good culture is the result of good people taking the raw stuff of planet Earth and making it into a place of delight. And then finally, if we're ruling tomorrow and we're cultivating tomorrow, we are also caring for the world that we've been sent into. The Hebrew word is shamar, super, super common Hebrew word in the Hebrew Bible. It's most often translated guarding or watching over and protecting. So this generation, probably more than any other generation to date, is more aware than ever of the ecological conversation. That is a very biblical conversation to have. 
regardless of where you fall on the spectrum of science, science denier, I don't know, what, wherever you fit in that world right now, theologically, Genesis says, part of your work as an image bearer is to care for creation, cultivating it and ruling it and subduing it out of kindness and generosity for the sake of flourishing of the other. This caring for the world is also caring for the other in front of you. This means that as image bearers, you are all shepherds of your workplace tomorrow. You are all pastors of your workplaces tomorrow to guard, to care for, to watch over, and to protect the employees that God has placed you in the midst of. So tomorrow, we're not just going to work on Monday morning. We're going to rule. We're going to cultivate. We're going to care for God's world, moving it towards this Garden City end. What is the key practice that we're going to engage with for the rest of the life of our church? If Sabbath creates rest as a state of existence into which we enter our work, how do we think of our work? Well, the monks called this vocation. The key practice that shapes our vision of work is that of vocation. And this word vocation comes from the Latin vocatio, and it basically means calling. Remember this sort of neo-monastic framework that is renewing the church right now that we've been kind of salting into our community? The Benedictine monks had rhythms of work. Part of being a monk was this vocation to tend and to till and to cultivate. And so what we see happening now is this, this idea of calling taking us into our workplace tomorrow. Stick with me here for just a moment. This idea of calling is actually echoed throughout your generation right now, even as I speak. I never thought of myself as needing to find purpose in my work as a Gen Xer. I was like, I need to make money, so I'm going to get a job, and then I'm going to do whatever I want to do with the rest of my life. That's my calling over there. Millennials and Gen Z, though, you guys don't want to just work for money. You want your work to mean something, to have a real purpose. In fact, I've met many millennials and more and more Gen Zs who are saying, I don't care how much money I make as long as I feel satisfied like I'm doing something good for the world. That, that impulse is vocation as calling. That is, that is a Christian way of actually viewing your career and your work. When we begin to view our work as vocation, what we're doing is we're actually removing what has been called the secular sacred divide. The spiritual stuff, I go to church on Sunday morning and, and Dan and the leaders and, and Shua and Alexis and all, they do all the spiritual stuff. They're like, they've been called, their vocation is spiritual. And then I go, Joe Blow, to work on Monday morning. And that's secular. That is, that's not spiritual. That's just me making money, doing whatever. When we begin to think of our lives as a practice of vocation, of calling, then all of a sudden, everything becomes spiritual. We now begin to live into the realities of why God and how God wants to rule and cultivate and care for this world as he moves it towards this garden end. Now, there was no one that took this idea of demolishing the sacred and the secular. He, there was nobody that took hold of this idea, more so than this fiery little monk named Martin Luther. Luther, Luther translated the word calling with a German word, beruf, beruf. And in German, the closest we can get to it in our English is he would say, all of us are called to our occupation. There's an occupation that we're going to be working in. So in classic Martin Luther rampage style, he was always so angry about everything. He demolished this idea that only the popes and the priests and spiritual nuns exercised, the, exercised their calling while the rest of us just went out and did subpar worldly work. Let me read this lengthy quote for us. It is pure intention that it's fiction. It's a lie that the pope, bishops, priests, monks, pastors, leaders, volunteers, Sunday mornings, 
that those things are the only things called the spiritual estate, while princes, lords, artisans, farmers, baristas, bankers, bus drivers, garbage men are called only the temporal estate. This is indeed a piece of deceit and hypocrisy. <laughs> Yet no one need be intimidated by it, and that for this reason. All Christians are truly of the spiritual estate, and there is no difference among them except that of office. We are all consecrated priests by baptism, as St. Peter says. You are a royal priesthood and a priestly realm. Great Lutheran theologians now for hundreds of years have taught what they call the priesthood of all believers. That's not only Lutheran theology. I think that's New Testament theology. You have been anointed and donned as a spiritual monk, priest, pastor, uh, shepherd, leader, missionary in your workplace tomorrow. Now, Let's beg the question here. It's got to be noted. Christian theology does not teach that your calling is something that you choose. So like you guys are all trying to choose your career, your job, where you go to college, what city you live in. Calling and vocation is much deeper than that. Your calling is something that you discover. It's something that you unearth over time. You excavate it from your inner man or your inner woman. The culture says, I am what I do. Scripture says, you do what you are. I do what I am. Our career path may be part of our calling. It may be part of it. It may fit it like perfectly. It may feel like, like perfectly fit into our calling. Though many will experience a career path that doesn't perfectly align with their calling for most of their life. In fact, I would, I would argue that most followers of Jesus around the world and in our own country we don't get to follow our quote-unquote calling exactly in alignment with our job. We still have a vocation, though. Calling unfolds, and it interweaves itself into various workplaces. So after I became a Christian, I was still called in discovering my vocation as a journeyman sign electrician, traveling all around the Northwest, putting up great big signs and running a crew. It just so happened that God in his mercy and wisdom allowed me and my calling to become vocational in this space. But I would still be just as, in fact, <laughs> at Lytle Signs where I worked after I became a Christian, just a quick story. Before I was a Christian, I was, I was pretty pretty rock and roll kid. And my truck was known for being the party truck. Like if you're gonna go out on Dan's truck for a week, you just, you're gonna drink all night and then he's gonna wake you up at five in the morning, you're gonna work all day and then you're gonna do that again. So it was known as the party truck for apprentices that came in. After I became a, uh, a Christian, my truck became known as the preacher's truck. New guys would come in and they'd be like, oh dude, did you get put on Dan's truck? Are you going to Utah with Dan? Because dude, for the next four hours, he's gonna be preaching the Bible at you and like trying to get you to become a Christian. Calling at Lytle Signs, calling it Lytle Signs. What seeing work as a vocation does is it shifts our emphasis around work from just a sense of self and climbing the social hierarchy and only making money, and it causes you tomorrow to say Monday morning, I am going into this world, into this career, into this job with my gifts and desires and training. How does this job and my work in it move the world forward by ruling and cultivating and caring for it towards God's desired end? This happens over and over and over. This... So many examples. I talked with a fireman this week that ended up planting a church. He's one of my new favorite pastors, but he's still a fireman. He's not paid by the church. I'm talking with businessmen and entrepreneurs who are basically saying, I have a master's degree, an MBA. I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a builder. And I know that my gift sets are going to help the church. They're going to build kingdom into, into the world. Uh, I'm 
Next week, we're laying hands on, we're gonna, we are praying to send missionaries all around the world. And next week, we're laying hands on Evan Johnson. Evan's going to come up, and he's wrapped up his mechanical engineering degree. We're sending him off to Eswatini, Africa, for nine months, where he's going to be using his degree to work on these broadcasting towers that transmit the gospel to 190 countries. His engineering degree is calling. And understand, you don't have to go to Africa or plant a church or be called a pastor for tomorrow you're calling to unfold at Sir Coffee or at Mainstay Medical where Will's working as an accountant. Each of you tomorrow are being sent into your mission field as a shepherding, ruler, cultivator, caretaker. And so work tomorrow as vocation, this mind frame of vocation, it is about your intent, your posture of heart, your sense of purpose in everything that you do. And this is why Paul said what we read at the beginning from the book Colossians, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving tomorrow. Let's close with this. This is JMC stuff, and I just thought it was brilliant. There's this Hebrew concept of kavana. Kavana. Kavana basically means the power of holy intent. So I want you guys to think about your job tomorrow, going, even, even for the students in the room, going to school tomorrow. Okay? And I want you to think about your intent, the way that your mind is framed going tomorrow. So there were rabbis that taught when the fall happened, the manifest glory of God was shattered into tiny, imperceptible pieces. What was glorious and beautiful, what, what the Hebrews called shalom, perfect interwoven peace and joy and delight, that was shattered into a million pieces. But when we as followers of Jesus, when we go to work tomorrow with kavana, with this holy intent, tomorrow when we bring to our work our full presence and our motivation is love for God, love for other, and we bring excellence to our work as if we are trying to prove ourselves to Jesus, in any ordinary task, the rabbis taught in that moment of kavana, holy intent, that we are reweaving shalom into the world. We're reweaving the manifest glory of God into created order. So one rabbi tells the story of a cobbler who used to weave shoes together. And as he would tie the stop of the shoe to the bottom of the shoe, he would look up and say, I'm reweaving glory here. So think about this. Tomorrow, as a barista, as you don't just dump the milk in, but you make that beautiful little fine art, like little flower thing, you're, you're, you're re-weaving glory. And you like put the lid on perfectly and you actually give the huge smile to the person that you, you're, you're re-weaving glory. Have you guys ever been at the snobby coffee shop when the barista just acts like you're such a pain for being there to get a cup of coffee? That's the diminishment of glory. But when you as a Christian are like, I want to make this the most beautiful cup of coffee for you. This happens in every place tomorrow. If you're in the construction world, you're not just going to go throw the bathroom remodel together as cheaply as possible, but you're actually going to look at it as an artisan for the sake of the flourishing of the people in that home. You're going to go the extra mile. If you're the preschool teacher who, who just feels like you're just overwhelmed just trying to babysit people's kids, no, tomorrow you're going to get down at eye level with these kids and you're going to reweave glory into them. You're going to draw out, cultivate, and shepherd the potential of those tiny little souls. Tomorrow you're not just studying and spell checking your emails and getting the job done for your boss so that you can escape work. Tomorrow you're reweaving glory. Reweaving glory. As we come to communion this morning, the ultimate work, as it's been called, 
of reweaving glory was done by, in our tradition, a carpenter. Jesus was more like a bricklayer, like a stonemason. I don't know if you've ever been to Israel. There's not a lot of wood. It's a desert out there. Jesus would have been heavy calloused of hand, blue collar, peasant stonemason from a backwater. And to reweave glory, to take the wounds of a world that had stratified humans against one another by their job location, Jesus would absorb all of our warring with one another, all of our comparing, all of our contrasting, all of the the wrong works of the world of oppression and injustice. Jesus, God incarnate, would come and with heavy callous of hand, he would begin to reshape glory by being crucified. He would take into himself sin, your sin, my sin. And as Jesus died, all of our worldly works all that we came here this morning with guilt and shame and pain and loss and hopelessness, Jesus was buried into the darkness and then burst out of that three days later, physically, literally, historically, and glory began to be rewoven through his resurrection and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon you and I. And so this morning as we come to communion, we come to remember, I go as a reweaver of glory tomorrow because of what Jesus did for me. The great ruler died for me so I can go and rule tomorrow. The great cultivator of all of creation was crucified in my place so I can go and cultivate my workplace tomorrow. I can do my job well. And the great shepherd, the chief shepherd of my soul, has shepherded me into his goodness so I can go and shepherd my workplace environment into the love of God and reweave shalom, reweave the goodness, the blood-bought love of God for his world.